Hello, and welcome back to Current Account. I'm your host, Clay Lowry, the Executive Vice President here at the Institute of International Finance. On Current Account, I try to talk about what I see as the most important current issues in international finance and economics, while providing my own U.S. politics and policy angles on these different issues when appropriate. This week, I want to talk about China, and there's a few reasons for that. First, last time I discussed China was at the start of the year when China had just announced that it was ending its strict zero-COVID policy after nearly three years of lockdown. It was a complete 180-degree shift, so where is China's economy now after a few months? And second, there has been a lot of speeches made recently from senior officials in the United States, the EU, and the United Kingdom about their different countries or jurisdictions' relationship with China. And I think it's kind of a good chance to take a stock of where things stand. So first, let's talk about what has happened to the Chinese economy since the reopening at the start of the year. In many ways, life appears back to normal in China. The mass mandate is gone. Restaurants are full and passenger numbers on trains and planes are back to pre-COVID levels. Travel bookings were especially strong in advance of the Golden Week holiday, which begins today. In fact, one of my colleagues said she really wants to go and see her family, but boy, it's been hard to just get all the different travel logistics done. Maybe more relevantly, pent-up consumption has rebounded in China, which is something that our economists here at IIF predicted. And China's performance after lockdowns exceeded expectations, with Q1, or quarter one, GDP growth at 4.5%, which is higher than what consensus had predicted. Most of this growth can be attributed to the increase in consumption. But export growth has also sharply rebounded, which greatly surpassed economists' expectations. Maybe very importantly, what has not happened in China is is not increased economic inflation around the world or commodity prices to be driven up by demand from China. This is something that, again, our economist Gene Ma had written about back in January and February that he did not think that was going to happen. And so far, he has been proven correct. But despite China's strong recovery out of zero COVID, this is not to say that there aren't still problems in the economy. The property market is still a drag on economic growth. Youth unemployment is at very high levels and almost 20% last month. And in the event of a global slowdown or recession in the global economy, China's exports would be negatively impacted. And maybe finally, China's policy tools seem a little more constrained than in the past. As for the overall economic outlook, at the end of last year, we were predicting a 4.5% growth outlook for China in 2023. And we upgraded that to around 5.5% after the Q1 figures. And my economists tell me there's a good chance that we will upgrade it even further, given what's been happening so far. And the IIF is not alone, as most major financial institutions have upgraded their forecasts for China this year. So overall, China's economy has bounced back in a bigger way than we had originally anticipated, but it has not caused some of the global inflationary aspects that others had predicted. Now let's move on to thinking about the U.S.-China relationship. As I have mentioned on previous podcasts, the U.S.-China relationship is frankly terrible, and it's been bad for a number of years. It appeared back in November last year when President Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping met in Indonesia that they were going to be able to put maybe a floor under the relationship. 
that would obviously be tested because of Congress and the pushback in the United States that's very bipartisan against China. But despite looking like there was a floor, what happened back in February when a Chinese spy balloon was spotted over the United States, that kind of basically took that floor and lowered it. And that's because Secretary of State Anthony Blinken had to cancel his plans to go to China. Distrust in China rose in the United States. And the new Speaker of the House of Representatives met with Taiwan's president here in the United States, which almost always heightens tensions between the United States and China. In a couple of major speeches in the last few weeks, first by U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, and then just last week by National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, there appears to be an attempt by the Biden administration to raise that floor again and try to improve relationships with China. Both of them stressed that the United States does not want to decouple from China. So a little divergence, which is, what is decoupling? It's not really something that's kind of common. Decoupling would be the idea that the United States and China would decouple from each other on trade, investment, capital flows. And that is something that there are many voices in the United States who said we should do that. Secretary Yellen warned of the risks associated with decoupling from China and called for a healthy economic relationship and cooperation on urgent global challenges, such as climate and debt distress in sovereign countries, something I talked about last week. In many respects, this is a realization on her part of what actually is going on between the economic relationship between the two countries. Despite the tariffs that we saw in the Trump administration, which have been kept in the Biden administration, trade between the United States and China remains at extremely healthy levels. Investment, while down, is still pretty significant between the two countries. But Secretary Yellen also made the point that when the United States takes national security steps, that those national security steps are not for economic gain, but purely for national security. Now, the problem there, I think, is that if you were standing in the shoes of the Chinese government and the national security advisor last year said that the reason we were putting in place export controls on semiconductors was to keep Chinese technological innovation a few generations behind the United States, that does not suggest a purely national security issue, even though that's exactly what the Biden administration would argue, but it suggests an economic issue. So I think there still remains a disconnect between how the United States is trying to say what their policy is and how it is perceived in China. Let's turn to the European Union and to the United Kingdom. So in the last few weeks, President of the EU, Ursula von der Leyen, and the United Kingdom's Foreign Secretary, Cleverly, have also delivered pretty major speeches on China. And in that they were taking some of the same themes as the U.S. officials, though it is a bit different. They were the ones actually who coined a different term than decoupling, which was de-risking. That de-risking idea is something that both Secretary Yellen and National Security Advisor Sullivan in the United States agreed with and said that is probably the right way to think about how we should be dealing with China. Now, what the heck is de-risking? In some respects, it is to say, we need to continue to do business with China, and I'll get to the, some of the statistics in a second. 
while we should be looking at how do we de-risk things like supply chain resilience or issues that engage with some of the aspects of China that those in the United States or in Europe or in the United Kingdom don't like too much. Now, we'll see how that actually works out in practice. But when you look at the European-China relationship, it is become, in some respects, maybe even more important than had been the U.S. relationship. Let's look at investment. China's FDI, foreign direct investment, into Europe is actually larger than China's FDI into the United States. And Europe's foreign direct investment into China is significantly larger than that of U.S. FDI into China. An interesting point that was pointed to me by research from the Rhodium Group is that Europe's FDI into China is very concentrated. It's concentrated in a few countries, Germany, France, Netherlands, and the United Kingdom, which is not part of the EU anymore. In terms of trade, more Chinese exports do go to the United States than to the EU, but not by much. And on the other hand, more Chinese imports come from the EU than the United States. So I guess the point that I'm trying to make is whether or not is the EU relationship with China slightly better than the United States relationship with China? And the answer, I think, is pretty much assuredly yes. Will the EU countries be on board? with a purely anti-China type of arguments that sometimes come from Washington? I think the answer is maybe not. That doesn't mean that there aren't issues that there will be agreement on, but I think that it's going to be a lot more complicated than you'll see in countries such as the relationship over how to think about Russia. So this is something to watch going forward. So now it's time for my three, two, one, which is my three main takeaways, two things I'm looking forward to, and my one sports fact. The first thing is that China's economy has started off much stronger than originally anticipated. And while it's not spilling over to the rest of the world in things like inflation or commodity price increases, it should have a stronger impact on global growth going forward. Next, the United States-China relationship remains quite tense on a number of different fronts. And we have seen an attempt by Biden administration senior officials to try to put a floor under that. At this point in time, it's too early to say whether that's going to be successful. And third, the EU-China relationship is also tense, but not nearly as tense as the United States. And there is more of an emphasis on engaging with China on a lot of business and investment and trade issues coming out of the EU than actually is the case for the United States. That relationship could create a little bit of a disconnect between how the US and the EU see those countries. The two things I'm looking forward to. Number one, the EU leaders are actually set to discuss a new EU-China policy at a summit in June. So we'll find out whether or not the EU is closer to where the U.S. is on this, or there actually is divergences between the two. And second, I'm looking forward to seeing whether, well, frankly, anybody from the United States at the cabinet level will be able to get to China in the near future, as that was supposed to be happening in 2023 and is not so far, and we don't see anything on the horizon. But that doesn't mean it won't come. And now my one sports fact. I was not going to talk about this this week, because I talked a little bit about the NBA last week, but a statement that was made by the great player from the Milwaukee Bucks, Giannis Antetokounmpo, made me think a little bit more about sports. 
Giannis has been the MVP of the league twice. He led the Milwaukee Bucks to a championship. They had been 50 years without a championship until he helped them win it a few years ago. And frankly, he's my son's favorite basketball player. They, they were upset in their first round playoff loss in the NBA playoffs. They were the number one seed and they lost to the number eight seed. And he was asked about whether or not this was a failure. And I'm going to quote what he said. There's no failure in sports. There's good days. There's bad days. Some days are successful. Some days you're not. Some days it's your turn. And some days it's not your turn. And that's what sport is about. You don't always win. Sometimes other people win. And this year, somebody else is going to win. It's as simple as that. This reminded me of kind of, I actually think of sports that way. I love the quote that Michael Jordan had, which by the way, he actually does talk about failure. But if you think about it, his sentiments are very similar to Giannis's. And he said, I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games. 26 times my teammates trusted me to hit the game-winning shot, and I missed. And he explained how he kept failing over and over again. He added, I failed over and over again in my life, and that is why I succeed. My favorite live example of this in a very short period of time was Simone Biles, arguably the greatest gymnast ever, who won three individual gold medals at the 2016 Olympics, along with a bronze and a team gold. But during the 2020 Olympics, which were actually held in 2021, she suffered a case of the twisties. Now, I don't know that much about gymnastics, but it basically means that when you're in the air doing some of the amazing things gymnasts do, she couldn't figure out where the ground was. Now, think about how scary that is. You could actually really hurt yourself. There were those in the United States who actually were criticizing her for going to the Olympics and not competing. But what she did do was she did finally compete in the balance beam and she won a bronze medal. Now, everybody thought she'd win the gold, but she won a bronze. I consider that bronze medal to be her greatest accomplishment because she overcame failure and fear to actually win that bronze. In sports, that kind of is what you're trying to do. Overcome things and do better going forward and being extremely competitive. So thank you, Giannis, for reminding me of that, even though I know you felt terrible after losing your playoff games. Well, that's it for this episode of Current Account. As always, we'd love to hear your feedback on the show as we constantly look to improve and enhance the experience for you, the listener. We can be reached at podcast at IIF.com. All our episodes can be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.